Hello, welcome to episode eight of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. I'm your host, Mike Waller. Thrilled to welcome my first podcast guest, former pro and college player, Chris Vasami. Chris is here to talk about hitting, what it's like to be a young player with major league dreams, what it takes to progress through a minor league system, and while Chris is not connected to the Cubs, we will dive into some of the topics relevant to key parts of the Cubs' future. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you having me. Walk us through your background as a player. I know you played, you were drafted by the Rockies. Walk us through that process. I was born and raised in southern New York, right outside of New York City. I was a All-American in high school. Went to Notre Dame out of high school. Finished up my playing career at Elon. Was drafted by the Rockies. Played four years with the Rockies, then played two years of independent ball. And it was a journey for sure to go from, you know, I remember being five years old playing against my brother and his friends in the backyard to little league and middle school ball four five years of varsity, um, traveling all over the country, playing for, uh, different leagues and travel ball and seeing other parts of the country and the other talent that was out there. And then, luckily, being uh, named a, an All-American, being able to play in the All-American game, and then getting to college and the college experience not going the way I pictured it at first. Um, you know, I went to Notre Dame as a, as a two-way player, a hitter and a pitcher, and when I got there, we were number two in the country. And having such a talented squad, you understand that as a freshman, you're going to wait your turn. And I got one at bat my freshman year through a bunch of innings. And so when I went in for my end of year meeting, I just asked my coach what I need to do this summer to come back and compete at first base next year. And he decided that, you know, hitting wasn't in my future. It wasn't in their future. It wasn't what they saw me doing. And I just felt like after one at bat in college, it was really hard for you to tell me that I wasn't a good enough hitter and that I couldn't do this. So I transferred to Elon, uh, ended up, you know, starting for about two years, got drafted as a first baseman. And, um, you know, for me, everything from there on out was a wonderful, beautiful experience that was ups and downs. And you got to see the real business side of baseball and you got to understand talent and work ethic and all different types of philosophies from different types of coaches. And luckily it was able to help me mold into the trainer and hitting coach that I am today. So take me back to your time at Elon. What, at what point did you start really thinking about being a professional player and, and start picturing yourself in that mode and trying to develop yourself in that, in that way? Honestly, it was in high school. It was the fall of my junior year of high school. I had just hit um, like 525 that summer for my summer team. And mm -hmm. it was then where I started talking to scouts. And a lot of scouts told me that, you know, um, the ball came off my bat differently. It sounded different. And that if I wanted to, this was something that I could possibly pursue. So it really started there in understanding what I needed to do personally on a day-to-day -day basis to put myself in the position where progress and continually getting better and, and developing 
my swing, my approach, my mindset, resiliency, being able to learn how to fail was everything that I had to do on a daily basis. And so when I finished in high school and headed to college, I really thought that it was going to be another test to go to the next level and see better arms on a daily basis and see better curveballs and see better breaking pitches and really be up for the challenge. And it was my junior of high school, uh, junior year of college that really everything clicked for me at the plate and being able to really understand what I was trying to accomplish on a daily basis and a weekly basis and understand what I was trying to do with my swing, how to take that into the game, how to make it translate. That's when, um, it really became apparent to me that, you know, being a pro was within reach. Okay. So you were drafted in 2007 and at the time the draft was a lot larger than it is today. Right? Mm-hmm. So when the Rockies drafted you, what kind of plan did they come in with? Did they chart out a path for you that they were hoping for, or was it throw you in rookie ball and see how it goes? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you get thrown into rookie ball and you have about 10 or 10 days or so of, of a pseudo mini camp when you, when you get there and you get to meet all your teammates and all the guys who had just been drafted and everybody's excited and everybody just gets to go out and, and really show how and why they had just gotten picked and gotten to the next level. And no pressure, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think what's interesting is when you do get to that level and you see the talent that's around you and you see who, you know, strength and bat speed and, you know, some guys just really have a knack for getting the barrel to the ball and two-strike approach, you, you really start to understand that there are just so many different ways that you can accomplish success. So as you come up through, um, obviously the, the talent is different. You've already kind of hit on that. As, as you move up on talent and it becomes, I imagine the mental game is a lot of this. I know when you coach, you talk about the mental game a lot. How do you approach the grind as you're a young player looking at, I'm in rookie ball, I've got these dreams, I think I'm great, but you also see five levels ahead of you and you see in some of these camps, like some of these guys' talent is just off the charts. I think that's a lot where it, things get put into perspective and you start to understand that because it's not just about talent, but it's also, it's such a skill-based sport. I mean, I've played with guys who, from an athletic standpoint, couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time, but they knew how to repeat their swing. Pitchers just knew how to repeat their motion and they could just throw 50, 60, 70 strikes in a row if they wanted to. But when they got done, they trip off, off the mound. And you really start to see the when you get to that upper level, how guys have just ingrained that mind-body connection and that repeatable motion, whether it be the swing or, or off the mound or catching ground balls or tracking down fly balls, whatever it is. You've just seen that you're around a group of guys who have put in the same amount of time that you have to, to accomplish the same things. And at the same time, you also start to learn the business side of it. There are so many guys who get signing bonuses and that signing bonus comes with 
a lot of opportunities. No matter how much they fail, they're just going to keep getting those opportunities because it is an investment. And, and so as you start to understand the business and you understand that the best, most talented guys, the hardest workers, the biggest producers, they're not always the ones that, that get to the next level because there is a business side of this. Is that where you start to see some of these guys who are in the minor leagues for five, six years? They're never a top prospect. They don't make the 100 lists, top 100 lists. And then all of a sudden they get up and end of a season on a bad team, they go out there and they can they can throw six innings. They can be effective. But like you never heard of them before 10 minutes ago. Absolutely. And those are the guys that are just consistently showing that, that they're up for – the challenge and and they bring that consistency on a daily basis or if they're a starting pitcher every five games and they just constantly show that they're going to outwork you and they're going to outlast you so let's let's get to the hitting now um when we get down to bare basics how do you define a good hitter a good hitter is somebody who is disciplined who knows their strengths, knows their weaknesses. They are somebody who has a repeatable swing. They are somebody who, when they're facing somebody that is just, you know, upper 90s with a, with a slider, they're, they're understanding how to pick out a pitch. They're understanding how they get the barrel to the ball. A good hitter is somebody, when you watch them, they, they rarely overswing. Everybody swings out of the zone, but that'll happen less as well. And it's their ability to know that contact and power are not mutually exclusive. So that kind of gets into some of the metrics talk. I know a lot of people look at the power metrics or um, we get into sort of the three true outcomes. If you're working with a hitter and you're trying to use their, maybe you don't have a lot of video, you're, you're working off stats or their feedback. What kind of things are you looking for? The first thing I would look at is, I, I wanna know what their hard hit average is. I wanna know how often do they hit the ball as hard as they can, whether it be on the ground, line drive, in the air. I know a lot of people tell me, well, you know, ground balls, yes. Two, three hop ground balls, yes. But a one hop ground ball is not the same as a two hop ground ball. Like we've, we've come to see that a one hop ground ball at 95 mile, exit, 95 mile an hour exit below rarely gets caught unless it's right at the guy or the girl. So it's being able to, to dissect those things. I want to look at that. I want to look at, you know, I want to see a, a, a small swing and miss percentage. Um, because as we see these things play out over the course of three, four, five, six hundred at bats in a season, you can't swing and miss a lot and be able to do damage early in the count and be able to drive the ball. And I, I truly believe that power is all relative. There's a guy, you know, guys out there who can hit the ball 450 feet, and there's guys out there who can hit the ball 360 feet. And guess what? In a lot of ballparks, both of them go out of the park. So. Power is, is relative to, to the individual. And, you know, I think, I, I truly believe that a two-run double is, you know, one of the pieces of baseball that's kind of been a lost art. Um, three-run homers and two-run doubles are 
are always going to be backbreakers for the op- for the opposing team. So when we're looking at young players coming up through the system, sometimes they're drafted at 18, 19. Their high school kids are going to put them late. Or maybe they're a college guy and trying to develop their swing. What kind of – our team's trying to train them up then on – getting more power into their swing, getting that exit below up? Is that one of the key measures? I think it is. And and it's interesting because if it really wasn't that big a deal, it, it wouldn't be talked about a lot. They wouldn't have a minimum 95 miles an hour to be considered a hard hit ball. They wouldn't show you okay. that, you know, after every – single or double or triple or home run or even outs for that matter how hard the exit velocity was because what we've come to find is that and i'm like i'm not a big launch angle guy because i truly believe that launch angle there's every every ball has a launch angle it's either good or bad it's either positive or negative and so what we've come to find is that if you're in that 20 to 33 degree launch angle range with 95 plus i mean doubles and home runs are inevitable so when you get these young hitters, I, I, I'm a believer that as you get bigger, faster, stronger, you can become more efficient with your swing. And more efficient with your swing means you actually don't have to swing as hard as you think you would to be able to get the barrel to the ball, to be able to get extension, to be able to create stability through impact and through contact. So we're able to, by slowing down, quote unquote, relativeness, you can actually make more contact and the last little bit of power that you would need is from the pitch. Is that, does that come from keeping the bat in the swing plane longer? It does. It, it also comes from feet in the ground. It comes from not rolling over that front foot at impact. It comes from, you know, every, every swing has a rotation, but the best swings also have a, a high degree of anti-rotation, which means that the front side of the body is essentially creating a wall for the back side of the body to hit against. And by having those two opposing forces against each other, it allows the bat to work out through the ball as long as it possibly can, palm up, palm down, creating the greatest backspin that we can create. Okay. So when you're working with a hitter, how do you train that? It's for me, it's piece by piece, which is why I always tell, you know, a lot of my hitters who come to me, especially if they're, you know, any 10, 11, 12 and up, because most of these kids have been playing baseball since they're five or six. So by that time, they're five, six years into their their baseball career. I always say to them, for every one year of baseball you've played, I need five. I need a month of time to be able to work through the bad habits to help you transition your mindset from what you used to do to what we have to do now, what we are gonna do. And we need time to have that learning process and that learning curve be available to us so we can work on things piece by piece because it's, it's yes, the swing is a whole, but it really is a sequence of events, a sequence of movements that are happening. So you have to be able to work on things piece by piece and and the key is that as we move from piece to piece the thing we just worked on can't get lost okay so in in pro organizations obviously things probably move a little faster but if they're going to rework a guy's swing there's some built-in time that probably is just a part of it um 
is that something that's part of a like a preseason, postseason work with the player? Is that work that goes on throughout the season as slumps happen? Yeah, I mean, as slumps happen, you'll see guys start to bear down and start to work on their swing, and, and the hitting coach will start, and then the hitting coordinator will come in, and and they'll kind of start piecing things together. And one of the great things about the minor leagues that I appreciate is the, the attention to detail, but more importantly, the attention to development. If there's an organizational... How so? So, for instance, it's not always about winning and losing. Winning will be a byproduct of everybody, each individual, doing what they need to be doing and, and performing at a high level. But if, if somebody's trying to work on their swing or their approach, they have time to do that. They have time to be in the cage before, after. They're able to go up to the plate and they're able to work on their swing and their approach in game and there might not be any consequence attached to it. You know, that's the beauty of spring training. That's the beauty of um, instructional league after the season uh, for, for all these organizations. It's just the, the ability for a player to have time to take a step back, rework the mind, rework the process, rework those, those neurotransmitters in their brain and create these new habits and feel comfortable moving on because at the end of the day, again, the organization has made a choice to have this person in their organization and they want everybody to be able to perform. Makes sense. So in a system, I know there are a lot of times where minor league staff gets hired and fired or a major league hitting coach changes. When those things happen, how much real impact is there on the actual players when the organizational philosophy changes? I think it matters in terms of who comes in next. If That's why there's a lot of times that a lot of these teams will hire from within because the verbiage is already there, the philosophy is already there. Um, logistically, it just it, it seems a little easier. And not that they're settling or, or taking the easy way out. It's just that there are enough hitting coaches within an organization, whether it be hitting coordinators, assisting hitting coordinators, and then a hitting coach at every single level, that you can backfill that position and keep things going. Okay. Unless, the, un, unless from top to bottom, the organization is just failing there's really not going to be a reason to overhaul the whole philosophy of the system. Okay, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about so current events. Last week, Major League Baseball just approved a bunch of new rules, and one of them is a shift. I want to get your thoughts on the shift a little bit. Um, one thing I've read about over the years is you know, I, I hear fans say, well, why doesn't that guy just hit the other way? I've read Ted Williams' book, and he talks about it because he was the first one shifted on with any real you know, frequency. And he said that he had to go get help to do it. He's the best hitter that ever walked. Mm-hmm. So what makes it so hard? Uh, and we'll talk lefty power hitters in particular. I think they get shifted on the most. Mm-hmm. Cubs saw Anthony Rizzo hit tons of line drive outs to the rover in right field. Right. What makes that difficult and what's the trade-off with hitting the other way? So starting with what it, what's so difficult, most lefty hitters come up in their career facing mostly righties. 
It's just a higher percentage of pitchers are righties than lefties. So you, in a sense, are able to cheat to the inner half of the plate because unless it's a changeup or a two-seamer, everything's going to be running into your bat. Curveballs are going to be breaking okay. in. Sliders are breaking in. And so being able to maybe get up on the plate, which you see a lot of lefties do, and they, they really make that outside corner a little bit more middle, middle, middle away, they're able to cheat a little bit, and they can hook balls, and, and they don't have to be as precise through the contact zone because, again, a lot of those breaking pitches are coming into them as opposed to righty on righty or even when they do finally face a lefty, lefty on lefty. You really have to keep that front shoulder, front hip in and be able to create maximum extension through the opposite field to be able to drive that pitch. So I think that's why so many lefties have a hard time reversing 5, 10, 15 years worth of their approach to change a little bit of their swing mechanics so that they can't be as pull happy. They have to really focus on the other side of the plate. And when you have... And when you're still hitting the ball hard, but you're making outs, mm -hmm. you can kind of fool yourself into thinking that everything's okay. It's just, if that guy wasn't there, if that guy wasn't there, if that guy wasn't there. Um, so, to be honest, I mean, I'm not really the biggest fan that they took away, that they're taking away the shift. Because I do believe that it's, it, it is a strategic tactic that these coaches, these players have done their research and they understand that this player is not going to put the ball the other way. And so that player, honestly, in my opinion, has put himself in a disadvantage. Makes sense. So what do you think, what, what do you see as the changes next year with the shift going away? Obviously, you can still position the infield to some extent. I'm, I'm sure we'll see some shortstops cheating behind the bag at second. Um, there's still no restrictions in the outfield, so I don't know if somebody's going to take the gamble of putting the left fielder over in the right field rover spot and you know giving up 100 feet of real estate out in the right. for five balls to drop in. Um, wh what do you see the impact being? I think I think the impact, <clears throat> excuse me, will eventually just be that a lot of those balls that those guys hit that used to get caught, they now drop and. Maybe the batting average goes up a little bit, but I think at the same time, I think pitchers are also, you know, you have to understand that a lot of pitchers have actually pitched to the side of the plate that the shift is on, which is smart. That's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just truly believe that a that lot of, sense. sorry. Sorry, I was going to say when they're, when they're taught to pitch inside because you've got the extra defenders over there. Exactly. That feeds making it difficult for that lefty to hit the other way. Right. So I really just think that a lot of these pitchers are just going to pitch towards the outer half of the plate if they know that a guy is pull happy and and make him hit something weak to the opposite field. That makes sense. Let's go in another direction here. So the, the Cup signed Seiya Suzuki from Japan in the offseason. And when he was in Japan, he was MVP-level player. Average velo he faced was 90 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. When he comes over here, the average velo he's facing now is 93, but he's really the real upshot is he's facing a lot more 96, 98, 99 than mm -hmm. he's ever seen before. When you're a hitter that's shown to have talent, 
clearly he's a talented ball player. How do you come over and adjust yourself to that volume or that to that velo? How do you amp up your swing and, and time it out? So the timing piece would be, well, it's two things. A lot of the work is going to have to be done off the field against high level, high velo machine, and just being able to let the mm-hmm. brain track the ball and start to understand when when things have to be moving. So what I mean by that is, and that feeds into the answer to the question on the field is that, you know, Suzuki's got a pretty decent leg kick that it takes time. So he needs to find that time within the pitcher's windup motion and then release to be able to get his foot down on time to allow the swing to work so that he can hit the ball out in front. You know, when you watch a lot of these Japanese hitters, they have these really slow, long, deliberate loads and that has a lot to do with the fact that they have more time to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, a lot of them just aren't as big as an American hitter is. So it's also their way of creating more momentum, creating more weight shift to be able to create more power. Okay. Is that maybe part of the reason why Shohei Otani had so much success? Because he is a bigger guy. He's 6'4". And- pretty big and strong absolutely he's a bigger guy if he, he's he's got way less movement he just you know uh he used to have a leg kick now he now he doesn't have a leg kick anymore he just lifts his heel up drops the heel and explodes i mean that's that's been a huge um adjustment that he's made that has obviously helped um, yeah so coming off the velocity now and i know a lot of the pitching focuses on tunneling pitches and we've got I mean, you watch Pitching Ninja, you can see these overlays that come in and the ball releases at the same point and then breaks in eight directions if you're you Darvish. Um, how, how does a hitter deal with that? How do you, is it picking spots? What are you looking for in the box? So depending on how, what the pitcher has, how much movement they have, how much run they have, yes, at the end of the day, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to pick a pitch and a spot. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what the pitcher kind of shows you that day. What does he have a better command of? What is he throwing more strikes with? What's his go-to? Being able to understand what he's throwing in different counts, and that'll help you get a, have a, take an educated guess on what you should do, which is why a lot of these hitters, the, the, the better hitters, are more aggressive early in the count when a pitcher is going to use more of the plate. That also feeds into the answer of good hitting, in my opinion, is always going to be good pitching is always going to be good hitting. I mean, they are just pitchers are at an advantage because they know what they're throwing and hitters don't. So we're trying to take away, we're trying to close that margin of advantage by having a better swing, not missing the pitch that I'm supposed to be putting in play. Because so many of these pitchers, they just have these devastating second and third pitches that even if you knew it was coming like it's really hard to hit which is why you see a DeGrom and an Otani and guys like this that are they're just kind of reinventing themselves and tweaking themselves a little bit you know 100 miles an hour with a 94 mile an hour slider or Otani's got this new 100 mile an hour sinker like there's just times where you're just going to have to understand that your batting average is not – you do not get your batting average against the elite people. You get them against the rest of the field. Makes sense. Yeah, some of those pitches are 
ridiculous when we see a, a guy, I mean, Javier Baez was famous for it, but he's going <laughs> three feet over a slider. Right. <laughs> he maybe saw fastball out of the hand. Exactly. Yeah, it's gone. Which so is why, you know, you, and, and, you and I have yeah. talked about this before. You know, you, you, if you're a 250, 260, 270, 275 hitter, I mean, you are, you're showing a lot year after year that you understand the strike zone. You understand what you can do. You understand what to do well. And now you add in another 18 doubles and 18 to 24 home runs. I mean, you're playing for 14 years. Yeah, that makes sense. And to kind of build on that topic, so this year the Cubs have dropped their strikeout rate pretty significantly. They were they were basically went from the second worst team in the league last year to they were middle of the pack around the All Star break. They're tailing off now with some injuries and after some of the you know the end of the season work, some of the young guys are yeah bringing up some younger guys yeah. But yeah, but to drop that team strikeout rate from over twenty five percent down to close to twenty three, they were under twenty three for a good chunk of the season. What do guys like Patrick Wisdom, Ian Happ, Wilson Contreras, who have cut that strike zone down, what are they working on to show that on the results? Well, the first thing is is that they – I like to say they're putting their pride away, meaning that their two-strike swing is not going to be their 2-0 swing anymore. They're going to make a conscious effort okay. to choke up, get closer to the plate. Um, you're not necessarily cutting your swing down, meaning you're swinging – like half your swing or chopping it or anything like that. But you understand that if you happen to take a great swing at a two strike pitch and it happens to go out, great. But you're, you're changing your mindset in that you're battling more. You're trying to spoil these really, really good pitches because what we've come to find is that the deeper into count you get and you spoil pitches and you foul pitches off, pitches inevitably, they get frustrated. And they'll make a mistake, and that's when you hit the double with two strikes. But you're, you know, but if you're up there, to your point, take a Javi Baez, and you're up there, and you're taking a a, a swing on an O2 pitch, just as if it was a two O BP fastball. I mean, there's a lot of time. Like, there's just there's too much margin for error in that particular count to be able to do that. Especially, I would imagine at a time when the pitcher can throw it wherever he wants because he's got pitches to play with exactly so it's really i mean that that to me that would be a conscious effort that the whole team is making that probably started at the end of last year or in spring training when they were sitting there during their meeting saying guys this is something that we as an organization we, we really truly want to work on that makes sense and kind of expanding on that so i'll, I'll jump to nico horner for a minute he's really had a good season he's a guy who's high contact rate low strikeout rate always has been um, this year, he's been able to drop his strikeout rate while actually adding more power. So when you're a young player coming up and you're looking to add more, he's never going to probably never going to be a 30 home run guy. But he's I think he's a nine on the season right now. He's developed more gap power. I think he's had five triples this year, which is way up from the past. Like, what does a guy like that look for to add power? Is that is that training and is that the swing path? Is is that looking for specific opportunities to drive the ball? What goes into that? If you take somebody like him who already has a high contact rate, low strikeout rate, and is starting to show glimpses of more power, that is straight up, in my opinion, that's weight room. That is from the day the season's over until you head for spring training, that is putting on 10 to 15 pounds of lean, 
strong muscle that you're training not just to get bigger, faster, stronger, more power, but you're able to, you're working to also translate that into movements that are relatable to your swing. So med ball throws, kettlebell swings, mace bell swings, things like, things like that, where you're putting on this muscle, but you're also learning how to use it at the same time. It's not just big bulky muscle that now can't be transferred, rotated, stabilized, things like that, that, that would be going on in our swing. So for me, somebody like that is, is putting on another 10, 15 pounds of muscle because at that point it just becomes science. Mass is, you know, force is mass times acceleration. So if I can swing, you know, if I can hit a ball 95 miles an hour at the weight I'm at and I put on 15 more pounds, well now it's more mass swinging at the same speed that naturally creates more force. And I imagine because he has that good hitting base, that little strikeout very he's going to be able to add power without really sacrificing that. 100%. Swinging harder or taking a different approach. Nope. Okay. The last area I want to hit on here is organizational philosophy. So when the Cubs were coming up from 2015 to 2020, they had all those guys, Javi Baez, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo. Rizzo was a pretty good two-strike hitter, but there was a lot of power trended more and more toward the three true outcomes. Does that become an organizational philosophy at some point, or is that just sort of the the guys that they had? Kyle Schwarber was another one that fits that boat. I think it's a little bit of understanding who you have. You know, the best organizations, the best coaches, the best teachers, they, they work with who they have right in front of them. You know, you can't really make somebody into something they don't want to be or they can't be or they're not willing to to adjust to. So I think it's understanding the pieces that you have in place and then knowing that, you know, when Chris Bryant's at his best, you know, he's hitting 300 with 40 bombs. And that that way, when we have somebody like a Javi Baez, who is, we know is going to play unbelievable defense and he's going to save us runs there, and we can understand that, you know what, if, if Javi Baez doesn't give us the, the batting average that we want or gets on, you know, gets on base as much as we want, but there is something special that every once in a while he's just he's going to crush a home run or he's going to get that two-run double that we need, that's how you end up having a really great team. It's being able to understand the pieces that you have and then building your philosophy around those, those pieces in terms of the, the things that are variable. The core pieces are always going to be there in terms of playing the game the right way and playing good defense, pitchers throwing strikes. I guess in that, Go ahead. I was going to say, so I guess in that vein, if you've got a core that's very power, kind of tends toward the strikeout numbers, it might be best to fill in around them with guys who have make a lot of contact, get on base. That right, thing. absolutely. You know, if you think back to those Yankees teams in the late 90s, you know, they had – they had power numbers. They had guys who hit for power, but it, they knew at the end of the day how to cut down, put the ball in play, take singles. You know, they, the, those Yankees teams would hit seven singles in a row and score four runs. Whereas those late, you know, those, those Texas Rangers teams that they beat every single year, which, you know, I'm on record saying that I think Juan Gonzalez is one of the most underrated players of all time. Like people truly don't understand the numbers that he put up, 330, 
45 home runs, 140 RBIs every year. But when the power went out in those playoffs because the Yankees were just better teams than them, there's a reason why the Yankees mm-hmm. moved on and, and the Rangers didn't. Does that sort of lend itself – does that approach lend itself to kind of the inherent streakiness? It always seemed like the Cubs were going through stretches where they'd bash teams, score 10 runs a game for a week and a half, and then later in the season they'd go, you know, week and a half averaging about two runs a game. There's absolutely a streakiness to it because we know that – I mean, it's just streaky in baseball, period. So to – to get an average, you're going to have to ride the highs and you're going to have to work through the lows. So, and with that, if you're not feeling your best, um, and you don't have the, you know, the mental mindset to get in there and feel the most confident and maybe you're second guessing or hesitating, a hesitation of a, you know, hesitating swing will never lead to power. Makes sense. So I I guess when a team is going through a rough patch or an individual is going through a rough patch, how do they go? How do they get themselves back on track? Is it, is it a matter of taking it back to basics and really hitting the fundamentals? Yeah, fi- hit the fundamentals and don't stop swinging. I mean, no, I mean, no, no one's getting out of a slump walking. It's just, it's not going to happen. So it's just, it's finding that thing that that clicks. And you know, it's funny because a lot of us, we who do what I do, or guys who played, or girls that play, we always joke that you know, you just one day you're in the cage and it just clicked, but it took thousands of swings to get to that moment of that click. Like it doesn't happen after seven or eight or nine. So you really have to put in the time making that mind body connection, understanding and, and literally just experimenting over and over again. And the funny part is that you might experiment with four different things and you end up right back where you started. Um, but because it feels new, you're, you're all about it and you're ready to roll with it. That's good stuff. Well, let's get out of here on a fun question. Um, what's your best memory on a baseball field? Ooh. Cooperstown is one of it. One of them for sure. You know, playing in Cooperstown when I was 12 years old, it was, it was a blast. I always joke that it, um, it was probably the, you know, the last time that I just had joy that was, you know, just – total joy on a baseball field that wasn't attached to anything of consequence at all. Um, let's see what else. Um, yeah. And anytime I won a championship with my team, that's just always a great feeling. You know, I was lucky enough to win a big East title with, with Notre Dame and I won a SoCon championship with Elon and just anytime that, that you have put in nine to 12 months worth of work and you just see it come to fruition is, it's always a great feeling. That's great stuff. Um, you want to talk about your training, what, what you do in Vasami training? So at Vasami training, I have come to fall in love with, with the process of teaching young hitters, male and female, baseball softball players, you know, how to not only just find their best swing, but also be able to come their, become their best competitor. Um, in the in and off the field on and off the field you know helping them understand that you know it's it's truly about the process and it's less about the results and if you work through the process you'll always get the results that that you are looking for at the end of the day and so being able to work with a player from a holistic standpoint mind body 
spirit, emotions, all those things, it really brings a lot of fulfillment to me because I got so much joy out of baseball and, and I went, you know, far in my career and I had so many, you know, incredible moments and met so many great people that I just, I love to see the players that I work with even get just a little bit of that same enjoyment out of the, the game that I love. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with understanding the players that I'm working with and meeting them where they want and helping them be goal-oriented goal and helping them understand that anything worth doing is worth doing right. So a lot of times that might take time and development and work and, you know, letting them know that the time that you put in is exactly what you'll get back. That's great. That's great stuff. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us today. I will put a link to Vasami training in the show notes. But I really appreciate you coming on and being the first guest on this podcast. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, thank you. And everybody else, uh, if you like the podcast, please like and subscribe wherever it is you get podcasts. Um, we're available on all the major carriers, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify. And please provide feedback. I'd love to hear what your thoughts on what Chris had to say. Thank you and go Cubs.